First Thessalonians chapter four, verse one. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions you were given through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your salvation, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called you for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, discards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you, have, you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to, remind, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Marcus. Um, one of the things, I don't know if we ever uh, mentioned um, why we say thanks be to God. So, And because we haven't been doing this uh, for a super long, uh, having someone else read scripture and then the congregation responding, but we say thanks be to God um, after the scripture is read because we are thanking God that he actually speaks to us. God is under no obligation to speak to his creatures. He has no obligation to reveal himself to us. And yet he does. And this is an act of grace toward us. And it's a gift that we can hear God's word. So that's why we say thanks be to God. Uh, we have been going through the book of First Thessalonians. And um, the overarching theme of the book is the return of Jesus. So Paul is writing this letter to this young Thessalonian church. He commends them for their faith and their faithfulness. He commends them and encourages them um, in what they're doing. And he's, he's giving them instructions on how to live in light of the fact that Christ is returning. And last week we looked at chapter 3 of First Thessalonians. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, specifically a prayer that Paul prays for the Thessalonian church. And because it's just a few verses, I'm going to read it to you again. And this is going to set us up for uh, the rest of our time in the Word today. So this is what... Paul's prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3 is, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct your, our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So Paul is praying this prayer. He's, it's threefold. Number one, he's saying, I love you. Thessalonian church, and I want to be with you, so I'm going to ask God to make a way for me to uh, to visit you. 
the second prayer is that they would grow in their love for the Lord and for the church and for the, those around them. And the third is that they would be established, that their, their, their holiness, that they'd be blameless in holiness, and that this would be a marker of them as a church, that they would be a loving church and a holy church. And today's passage is an expansion of what the Thessalonian church would look like if God actually answered the prayer of Paul. And in the next few moments, I want us to just walk through the text and see what would it look like. Paul is writing chapter 4, obviously, um, after chapter 3. And when one of the important principles in reading scripture is you always look at the context. If you want to know what the text is saying, you have to read not just the verse or the passage itself, but what is the what what comes before, what comes after, what is the intent of the author as he writes this letter. So today let's focus on what the church would look like if Paul's prayer was answered. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go a little bit out of order um, by looking at the the final verses of this passage first. Um, so Paul, one of his prayers is that the love of the Thessalonian church would, of the Thessalonians would, that the, their love would increase for those in the church and how, and their love for the community. So let me look at verse 9 again, verses 9 through 12. And this is what he says. He says, love, the end of verse 9, um, you've been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. He might be an imposition upon you, church. And the reason why is because he didn't want the the church to be distracted by unnecessary things. He didn't want the church to to be to have things imposed upon them. He wanted them to hear the gospel undistracted. He wanted himself and Silas and Timothy to be an example for the Thessalonian church and how to live. So they work their butts off. And they do not place a burden on the church. And Paul is going to expand on what the Christian work ethic is in Second Thessalonians. We're not going to look at it this time around. But the point of the, these verses is for the Thessalonians to live in a way that emulates Paul. And his purpose is not to distract others from the gospel message and the gospel work. And Paul is saying, I made myself, I, I, I worked hard so that that I would not be dependent on anyone, so that you, Thessalonian church, could just hear the gospel, so that you would not have to focus on the burden that I placed upon you. And I mentioned, um, I think it was last week, the Bible does talk about honoring those who teach and, and lead the church um, with the financial remuneration, but we're not going to go into that. But Paul, what he's saying is, I'm giving up my rights for the sake of you, church. And he, the main principle is this. How we work reflects who it is that we belong to. Why do you do work? Is it ultimately so that you would earn money, so that you can live the type of life that you want? No. The reason why you work hard is because God has given you a calling in your workplace, in your family, in your community, to carry out these things that may not seem a whole lot, doesn't may, sometimes may not seem important. Like you're not, like I, I have the privilege of coming up here to speak the word of God. Um, not all of us have that privilege, but what you do matters, and it reflects who you belong to. When you work hard, you're setting an example to other people. You're, you're, you are living a testimony, telling the world, "My God is worth my hard work." 
And he's telling the Thessalonian church, do not be a burden to other people with your laziness. Do not impose anything that would distract the church from the gospel. This is, this is why he says, live quietly. This is why he says, mind your own affairs. There are things that we should talk about. There are many things we should talk about. But in the church, what is the primary message? What is it that we, not just me as a pastor, Tom as a pastor, or anyone else that's going to stand in this pulpit, but what is it as a church that we care about the most? This is why Paul says, mind your own affairs. Aspire to live quietly. Work hard with your own hands. Do not be a distraction. This is the main thing Paul's saying. Do not be a distraction to other people when it comes to the life of the church. Let the gospel be loud and clear. Let your own opinions, let your own personality, these things matter, but don't let them take away from the primary work of the church. So this is these are the final verses of today's passage. Now let's talk about this uh, other aspect, which is our bodies, our sexuality. So Paul tells the Thessalonian church, as Marcus read earlier, he encourages them, you receive this word from you. You've been taught how to walk, and you have been doing this faithfully. And he says, do this more and more. Paul is saying, continue to do what you're doing. And there are, Paul writes to different churches, and some of them, they are not so awesome. Others, like the Thessalonian church, Paul is saying, you guys are actually, um, I love what you guys are doing. Continue on. Be a bright spot in your community. And then he moves into this topic of sexuality. He talks about the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you would know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. If you grew up in any religious environments in the 90s and early 2000s, um, you may have heard of a guy named Joshua Harris. And Josh Harris, he wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And I read it, and I think some of you guys have read it. And um, this was kind of the, the textbook for something called the parody movement or the parody culture in the evangelical church. And um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole lot of hoopla around it. But let me kind of give you a, uh, a quick history lesson on some of the things that shaped the evangelical church in the 90s and 2000s. So, um, back in the, in, the, in the 90s, there was a large group of evangelical believers who were reacting to the effects of sex outside marriage, and they, they wanted to um, instill in, in the Western church this um, understanding of sex and sexuality. So there was a guy at a, it's called Lifeway Christian Resources. This is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, in 1992, there's a guy who presented the theme of true love weights. And this was about the a, a Christian sex education campaign. And this was wildly successful. Um, I, I remember this growing up in the church, and they had conventions, and they had rallies. In Washington, D.C., in 1994, there was there were 25,000 youth who, and who, who marched on, 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 on the mall, um, pledging to live sexually pure lives. And what's interesting is one of the capstone verses that kind of, um, that they, they repeated over and over in this time was the verse that we're reading right now, that you abstain from sexual immorality. 
So Josh Harris, he comes along as a teenager. He writes this book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It promotes abstinence, and it, it popularized this concept of courting as an alternative to dating. And this book went on to sell a million copies. And it was in publication for, it was being published for, I think, close to 15, 20 years. Um, and he was pushing these tenets of abstinence and sexual purity and courtship and um, teaching people this is how you should live. You should be pure. You should, you should make a commitment, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of whoever it is that you're going to marry down the road, that you're remaining pure. You're keeping yourself clean for whoever you're going to marry. And it taught implicitly this kind of, one, one writer calls it the sexual prosperity gospel, meaning that if you control your sex life, if you control your lust and all these things that are happening in your body, then God will reward you with the right partner, and you're going to have this amazing sex life when you're married because you have this understanding of sex, and you're saving yourself for marriage. What's interesting is in the 2000s, the late 2000s, Josh Harris, the author of I Kiss Sitting Goodbye, he started repudiating some of the things that he, he was, uh, actually everything that he wrote in the book. And he uh, went on this campaign, he made a documentary saying, now I see where, I, I see the things that I was teaching, um, it was actually harmful to people because it caused them a whole lot of guilt and shame. And he, he did, he did, I think he did a speaking tour, um, and, it ultimately ended in him saying, it's not just the what I taught as a teenager and then a 20, a 20-something, a 30-something. He became a, a pastor of a megachurch, and um, I've benefited from his ministry. I've read his books, and actually, I'm very thankful for his ministry. But in 2019, he said, I no longer consider myself a Christian. And one of the capstone things that kind of fell apart for him was this, this what he thought was the biblical understanding of sexuality and how we should treat our bodies. There was um, another gal by the name of Linda Klein, and this was in the New York Times. Uh, she embraced this movement in her teens and left in disenchantment in, at, at age 21. Um, this was 20 years ago. And she describes the trauma and shame. I would find myself in tears and in a ball in the corner of a bed, crying, my eczema coming out, which it does when I'm stressed and scratching myself till I bled, having a deep shame reaction. And she found that she was far from alone. She collected tales of enduring anxiety in a book that's called Pierre Inside the Evangelical Movement that shamed a generation of young women and how I broke free. And she says, we went to war with ourselves, our own bodies, our own sexual natures, all under the strict commandment of the church. And then this is in the New York Times. The fundamental message inspired by a verse from Paul in the Apostles' first epistle to the Thessalonians was this. I'm making a commitment to myself, my family, and my creator that I will abstain from sexual activity of any kind before marriage. I will keep my body and my thoughts pure as I trust God's perfect plan for my life. And that sounds kind of cool, um, but it's not super cool when that's your only understanding of it. And Joshua Harris, he says, that's what I pushed for all these years. That's what I pushed. And I think what the problem with that type of thinking was, was it focused so much on what you did or didn't do with your body and your sexuality and your outward behaviors instead of focusing on the why of sexuality. And this is the why. And actually not, not just the why, but the who. To who does our sexuality and our bodies belong to? 
why does it matter? Why do the sex and our bodies, why do they matter? It's not because of what I can or can't do or how it might affect someone or someone else down the road, even though those matter. What really matters and the question that we should be asking when it comes to sexuality is this. Who does my body belong to? To whom does my sexuality belong to? So when Paul prays this prayer for holiness, he's not saying that they would remain sexually pure, although that's a side thing. He's saying, I want you, Thessalonian church, to be holy because I want you to belong to God. This is the real question. And then let's continue on through the, the text because there's more. Paul says in verse 6 that no one transgressed and wronged his brother in this matter. And there's actually a lot of debate about what Paul is exactly saying in verse 6. What does it mean to transgress and wrong our brother in this matter? And as I was reading through commentaries, um, this is what made the most sense to me. There is an outward-facing aspect to our sexuality that Paul is speaking of. And whether or not we commit sexual immorality, this is never a private thing. If you have heard of St. Augustine, this is um, one of the church fathers in the 4th century, I believe. Um, a lot of really good work that he's he's or a lot of really good writing that that uh, you can find in, in books or online. But um, I think one of his most um, uh, his biggest contributions to how we understand things like sexual immorality or sin is this: sin is the human being curved in on himself. Sin is the human being curved in on himself. Sin is ourselves becoming the central point of our lives. It's the opposite of holiness because in sin we're saying, my body, my sexuality, my preferences, my orientation, this belongs to me. That's what sin does. It makes us focused and prideful. Our sexuality is such a powerful, fundamental thing. And I think when Augustine says that sin is us being curved inward on ourselves. I think what he's saying is this, that when we wield our sexuality for our own pleasure, we dehumanize ourselves because sin reinforces selfishness and pride and that will shrivel up our souls. So in this culture, pornography, casual sex, sex outside of God giving, outside the God-given boundaries of marriage, all these things that you're going to see on social media, these things don't grow us in our sacrificial love for other people. They don't recognize the gift of sexuality that God has given us. They don't honor God's gift in our own bodies or in the bodies of other people. And this is the human being curved in on ourselves. And what you're going to hear in culture is be free. Enjoy your life. Do whatever it is that you want, as long as it doesn't hurt other people, except it does. It hurts ourselves. It hurts other people. When you, and this is how it hurts other people, when you sin, you become less of who God created you to be. You become more inward focused. You become more concerned about what benefits you versus what benefits other people. And not just sexual immorality, but everything the real you becomes more faint and the person that God designed you to become slowly disintegrates. When you sin, you disintegrate as a human being. And I use this word disintegrate in, I'm trying to think of the most literal sense. 
what does it mean to have integrity? To have integrity means that you are true, that you're whole, you're firm, and to disintegrate is to be false and fractured and unstable. And if that's what's happening to us, it's not only, it's not only harmful to us, it's harmful to other people. And back to what Paul's saying in verse 6. There is a lessened version of yourself when you sin. And this is the transgression. This is the wrong that you cause your brother because you are no longer blessing those around you when you sin. Because you cannot give everything you're supposed to give to the other person when you have nothing left to give when your selfish sexuality has taken those things from you. You cannot love completely because selfish sexuality has taught you false love. And one way to interpret this word transgress in the text is this Greek word for defraud. You defraud your brother or sister when you're not... You're, you defraud your brother or sister because you're not giving them what God wants you to give them. When you sin, in this passage specifically, when you commit sexual immorality, your personality and your time and your energy and your joy and your soul are diminished by your sin. And you cannot give yourself fully to other people if you've been curved inward. The people in your life are cheated when you're not fully you. I'm not just talking about how, how you sin. Because you disintegrate in your sin, people aren't getting the best version of you. And what this speaks to is the dignity that we have as human beings. Every one of us, we're endowed with so much power and imagination and creativity and the potential to love dying people back to life. We were created in the image of God, this God who creates galaxies that are hundreds of millions of light years across, and a universe that's 13.4 billion light years across, that's ever-expanding. We were created in the image of God, and when, it said, when, when we understand that, we understand we have this dignity and power and strength that shrivels up our souls shrink when we sin. At the heart of true God-given holy sexuality is sacrifice and giving and caring for the needs of another. It's not selfish. In other words, what Paul's talking about is love. What's Paul talking about? Holiness and love. Your holiness is love to the people around you. And this is one of the practical things that Paul prays for, just how you treat your body. Do you follow God's design for sex? God is the inventor of sex, and sex exists for two reasons, I, I believe. Um, number one is procreation, be fruitful and multiply. Um, commentators have said that this is the most fun of all God's commandments. Uh, the second is sex is, the purpose is as a way to express our love to another person. It's meant to be outward facing. And the world is blessed with children when we carry out the first purpose. And the person we love is blessed when we carry out the second purpose. And this is why Paul says, your sexual immorality, it affects the church. It affects other people. It's not just because we're supposed to follow these strict rules for the sake of being disciplined people. And at this point, um, some of us might be understanding all these things intellectually. 
but you're wondering how this might apply to you because you're not in a place where you can really do anything with your sexuality um, except maybe to suppress it. Whether it be singleness or your orientation or relational issues with the person that you're with. And you wonder what in the world this might mean for you when all you feel is loneliness when it comes to things like this. And I know a tiny bit about loneliness, uh, maybe not as much as how some of you have uh, ex experienced it, but I know that when you feel the sting of loneliness, there's often very little that can relieve it. And what can I say to you? I can't promise you that you'll find someone to love for life and be intimate with. I can't promise that you'll one day reach a state of Zen bliss when all your longings for companionship will be quieted. And as a pastor, sometimes I just I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Except that you are not as unseen as you might feel you are sometimes. And there are articles and books written about this, and I can, if you talk to me afterwards, I can recommend some good ones to you. But um, what, what I'm going to give to you today is I'm going to trust that God's word speaks to us, and maybe this will be enough to last you, to bring you another day of, um, of life. Um, and really, our faith is for all of us. Really, our faith is supposed to be sustained one day at a time anyway. And that's why Jesus tells us to ask not for monthly bread or weekly bread. He, Jesus says, pray for daily bread. So um, let me just read this passage from Psalm 73, just as something that might sustain us for a few more hours. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, when I was brutish in ignorance, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. And this is for us. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For single and married and those in dating relationships, whom have we in heaven but Jesus? He's enough. Verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. And why does the Bible speak to us like this? Why speak about sex at all? Because I I don't know if I've ever actually spoken about sex at, at uh, IGC. Um, I know that I've spoken in singleness before. I don't remember if I've spoken in sex. Um, why talk about it? It's kind of uncomfortable for me. Uh, why tell us that it's wrong and immoral when we kind of have this intuition that there, there's just some things we shouldn't be doing? Why does Paul write about it? Why does the Bible tell us about our bodies and our sexuality? Is it to shame us? Is it to give authority to figures and religious institutions as a way to control us? Why think about these things? If you listen to some of our friends in culture on social media or just whatever you guys read, what do they say about the Christian ethic of sex? They'll tell you that it's antiquated and backward. It's stifling, and if you want to be free, if you want to be your truest self, if you want to enjoy your life, then you should jettison all these outdated beliefs about sex and sexuality. Live your life. Do whatever it is that you want. Because what does it matter if no one's being hurt? 
And what does the church have to say about it? There are two things I want to highlight about passages in the Bible that talk about sex. Number one, the Bible actually has a very positive view of sex. Um, one of the first commandments is have sex, right? There's a whole book in the Bible about um, sex, Song of Solomon. That's the first thing. The second is this. There is hope and life interwoven into the passages that speak against sinful sexual practices. Look at verse 7. God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. When we read things that seem shaming to us, read the rest of the passage. Because if you are in Christ, there's so much more. If you're set, if you are, if right now we're, we're sexually immoral, if we have a history that we're embarrassed by, if we're caught up in things that we know are wrong, then listen to this. If you belong to Jesus, your story does not end in shame. Your story does not end in condemnation. Your story does not end in judgment. And Paul writes these things to the Thessalonians because he wants to remind them of what is true of them. That they've been called to something that is good and true and beautiful. Verse 3, God has called us to sanctification. Verse 7, God has called us to holiness. And these are wonderful, beautiful things. Sanctification is becoming more like Christ. Holiness is becoming more of who you're supposed to be, not this inwardly curved, shriveling person, but this free and full human being as God intended. And if you are in Jesus, your story will not end. Your story might be filled with sin and immorality and things that make you hide your face in shame now, but your story will ultimately be one of glory. That will never end. No shame, no judgment, no condemnation, no embarrassment. Your story will be a beautiful story that you will spend eternity telling saints and angels about. And why? Because if you belong to Jesus, you will be sanctified. You will be completely holy one day. And God will do his good work in your life if you follow him. Dane Ortland, um, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, this is what he writes. He, meaning Jesus, Jesus sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. And Jesus is for us, even in our sexual immorality. Jesus is for us. If you follow him, you will. He will teach you the truest thing about you. And this is why we have this text. It's not meant to make us feel uncomfortable or shame. It's meant to point us to what is most true about us. Let me read to you from First Corinthians. I actually have um, like 15 more minutes of content. I'm just going to cut out. So let me end with this. First Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then here is the key verse. And such were some of you. Past tense. Past tense. And such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's the truest thing about you. That is the truest thing about you. And you can talk all you want about your preferences, your orientation, how you want to live your life. But if you are in Christ, that is not you. God wants to dignify you in your holiness and sanctification. This is what God wants for you. And this is the truest thing about you. God gives us his Holy Spirit, Paul writes in this passage, so that we would not just believe it, but so that we could express who we are in positive ways that honor God and bless those around us. I want to share with you something from C.S. Lewis. Um, I'm not going to, though, so you can ask me later. It's really good, but for the sake of time, I'm going to pass it. Pass it. Um, let, me, let me end with this. We've got more time in First Thessalonians. Tom will be preaching um, next week. Um, let, let, me, let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word and that you've given us not something negative to be ashamed by, ashamed of, but something positive that gives us life. And I pray that this would be true of our church, whether or not sexual immorality is our problem. I pray that we would belong to Jesus, that we'd be set apart in holiness for the Lord. Make this true of us, God. And I pray that our IGC would honor you in the way that we treat ourselves and other people. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer and our friend and our advocates and our companion. I pray this in his name. Amen.